Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode. I'm Daniel, the psychology student, talking about psychology in our everyday lives, whether it's the micro or the macro. Look, we have to talk about what's going on in the world right now. I'm sure you've seen the news about what happened to Iran, what happened to the 22-year-old girl who wasn't properly wearing her job and who ended up losing her life. Now, this isn't a political channel, this isn't a history channel, but it's about psychology. And I want you to understand the ripple effects of why they did what they did to her and the influence that this has on not just Iran, but on every country, on every mayor of every city, of every teacher, and of every parent. And you could argue of every older sibling. I want to talk about power. I want to talk about punishment. I want to talk about control. Whether it's done at a systemic level, like your giant regime, and you're run by a dictator, or a parent in an abusive household. The best way to illustrate this example is to give you other examples that are a lot more in the micro, that are a lot more in the individual basis so that we can understand how we got to this place. Now, the story really is that. It was a young girl who, the first time I heard about on the news, it said, 22-year-old suffers from heart attack. I go, huh, what are the odds that a 22-year-old has a heart attack? The autopsy revealed that this young lady had suffered brain damage. And then two other girls came forward that they said we were all detained. They beat us all, and she ended up going into a coma and didn't make it out. Now, you have to understand that in Iran, there's something called the morality police or the fashion police. After about 1979, hijabs became mandatory. They, they became an act of compulsion. So you have to wear a hijab in Iran or else, or you will be fined and it is punishable. This is what's important to know. Whenever you make a law, whether it be in a country, whether it be at home, whether it be in a school environment, it is important that you say, this is what the law is. Everybody should know the law so you can't say I didn't know. And there have to be some sort of punishments for the law, for breaking the law. Now, if we look at this as a parent in a household, we could say this. You're a dad or mom of two children. And you say, look, after 6 p.m., no more going on your phone. Okay, that's it for the day. When it's 6.15 and you see one of your boys on their phone and the other siblings looking as well, what do you do? Why is it important that you put a stop to that behavior immediately? Because it sends a message not only to him, but to the other person in the house. And also, this is the part that many people miss, to yourself. Because if you're a person who thinks I'm easygoing, I'm a pushover, I'm pretty lenient when it comes to things. I'm a big believer in autonomy. You might let things slide. But if you hold yourself to a no-nonsense attitude, what I say goes, I am strict. And if you go against my rules, that is disrespectful. Now you're going to react differently. So it's congruent with your identity. So now when dad sees his child not behaving, and he's going to look at his other son looking at him, he has to make an example out of him. So the kid learns, so his brother doesn't get any ideas, and so he himself doubled down on his own identity and goes, this is the person that I am. Why? Because if he doesn't punish his son right then and there so severely that his friend or that his, that his brother, that his sibling, doesn't think, holy smokes, I'm not ever going to do that. What does that mean for dad's rule? And you have to look at this in the macro in the sense of, it's not just this rule. It doesn't mean, oh, dad isn't that strict about phones. It rises exponentially to dad 
is not hard on his word. Whatever dad says from now on, he's not 100% because I have a precedent. I have an example of him saying this is the law. And when my brother broke it, he didn't hammer down. So there's points in life where it's essential to, to back it up. Like there's a, there's a gentleman online who said, look, don't ever threaten people. Because if you threaten people, and if you say, for example, don't say another word, or don't take another step, or I'll do blank. Now, if they say another word, or if they take another step, you have to do something. You have to do something. Because if you're at a bar and you're looking at someone and you're threatening them, let's say things have escalated. You say, if you take another step forward, we're going to get physical. And they take another step forward. Psychologically now, it's really important that you follow through. Why? In this context, I am not advocating for violence. In majority of context, first of all, I would say I would never advocate for violence. But Iran's a special case if you're under a dictator regime. The problem here is... If you don't follow through with what you said, it sets a precedent in this person's minds of this guy's bluffing. He's playing a poker game. He's trying to convince me that his hand is better than it actually is. And if he's lying about this, he's lying about other things. And they won't take you seriously anymore and it's dangerous. Another example, you're a teacher in a classroom, exact same thing. One of the kids is acting up. You give him maybe a warning, you give him a second warning. I've seen with my own eyes what happens when a teacher is too relaxed. When she sees the kid in the front row on his phone, guess what happens the next day? Another kid does it, and another kid does it, and another kid does it. Of course they do. Because in her silence, she told them, I'm okay with you being on your phone. I don't see a problem here. So the kids continue being on the phone, and they start acting worse and worse and worse. And it's up to her to set the line down. As opposed to on the very first day, she goes, John, put your phone away. And then if he's like, John, if I see your phone one more time, we're kicking you out of the class. Now, other kids are going to think twice. If you want to go way back when, we can look at France and the creation of the guillotine. Folks, there are many ways to take someone's life. But to make it a spectacle, to bring them out on a stage, on a platform that's risen above the ground, where people gather and they're shouting and, they're, and this, this giant thing that falls down and beheads people. Why? There are faster ways to take care of someone, to take someone's life. Because you want to send a message. If you cross me, if you cross my rules, this is what awaits you. And you are crystal clear. You don't even have to say what I've just said. But if one person steps out of line and you deal with it swiftly, it sends a message to everybody else. And guess what? They get afraid and they cower. So what happens in dictator regimes like Iran is... You have people that have these laws and they have severe punishments for breaking these laws, which now we know is beating you to death is one of them. Another one is being a part of the LGBTQ community in Iran is a death sentence. Sometimes there are actually stories about women riding bikes and being verbally harassed by police because Women in Iran are not supposed to ride bikes. There are actual anecdotal stories of women talking about this. So what you realize is when these laws are heavily imposed with punishment, it not only puts fear into that person, but it puts fear into the people around them. There's a very good show on Netflix. It's called How to Become a Tyrant. It has about five or six episodes. It's very well done about all the different ways that a dictator has to approach the system, the regime, 
to disempower the people, one of the first things that you need to do is you need to recognize that there is a population difference, the ratio. The ratio of the people, of the working class, of the quote-unquote poor of a country far exceed the population of the higher class of the people at the top. So one of the extremely important things that you have to do is if you're a dictator, if you're a person at the top, is you divide the people. This problem is your problem alone and no one is coming to save you. Not your family, not your friends, not your neighbors, not other countries. Who do you think is going to come? America or Turkey? No one's coming to help you. So they divide you and they make you believe that a systemic problem is an individual problem. If you've taken sociology, this is your bread and butter. They make you believe that a systemic problem is your problem. You don't have enough money for food. Well, clearly, you're just not working enough. It doesn't matter that you're working two jobs and are trying to raise two children and you're a single mom. If you go out and peacefully protest and you get shot, well, of course, you're protesting against the regime. You're protesting against the laws. The laws are built on Islam. That means you're protesting or you are insulting the word of the above, the dictator. Why are people afraid to say death to the dictator until they get into protests and they get into a group of people? Why? Because they recognize we are not alone. Whatever country you're in, whatever place you're in, whether it's a protest at large or whether it's in a classroom, when you look around and when other people start joining and you sit back and you go, this isn't an individual problem. Many people are, are feeling the way that I'm feeling. And they have the thoughts that I have. If you look back at two of my videos, one of them was about the influences of young men. And I talked about different stuff and whatnot. And one of the big takeaways was you look at a person on stage and you look at the things that they say. You listen to it. And then you look at the audience and how they applaud and how their eyes light up. And you go, holy smokes. All these people in the audience feel the way you feel. You're saying what they wish they could say. And that's why they resonate with you. The same thing was true years ago when I talked about the BLM protests. There was an issue, there was an underlying thought or an anger that needed to be expressed so that when people started protesting and it turned to theft and vandalism, it was like, this is your anger manifested into behavior. A brilliant example that I gave was when a child's trying to get their mother's attention, just listen. It goes something like, they'll call out their mother's name. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. 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 Hey. The tone changes. The voice gets louder. Maybe there's a shout. Maybe there's a throat. If they're really young, maybe there's a scream. If you have an individual who is frustrated, angry about something, they will try to make their voice be heard. And they will do so in different ways. We see this in students in a classroom. We see this in a relationship. The girl isn't happy because her boyfriend is doing whatever. Think about the action. What does she do? Option one might be, well, he should know that he's making me upset, so I'm just not going to talk. A couple of days pass, and she goes, this guy's a dimwit. He should know, but he's not going to know, so I actually have to tell him. I tell him, and he doesn't listen. Okay, now I'm going to have to yell at him. I yelled at him, he didn't listen. Now I'm going to have to threaten breaking up with him. So the basis of human nature, when it's very logical, if something doesn't work, we're going to change the method in order to get your attention and generally we increase the intensity. When you go out to peacefully protest in a country and you are shot to death, you invite violence. 
you invite a greater level of intensity. I would not incite violence. I am not inciting violence right now. I do not. I want to be careful because I'm such a big fan of peaceful protesting and of talking it out. But if peaceful protesting is not an option, it is a natural human tendency for you to escalate your application. Because eventually you will get that person's attention, whether that's your partner, whether that's your teacher, whether that's your dictator. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's natural. It's inevitable. And it's what should happen. Logically speaking, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. The tough place that the people in Iran find themselves in, let me just finish this point. When we were talking about the system making you believe that it's an individual problem and not a systemic problem, what do they do? They turn off the internet. They turn off Wi-Fi. Why? So you can't connect to each other. So you can't make that Facebook page. So you can't text out and see all the people who are uniting with you. One of the truly tragic things is there's so many countries around the world, uh, Germany, Canada, America, Sweden, Australia, who are showing their solidarity and their support to Iran. But because the internet has been shut off in Iran, they don't see that. The people of Iran have no idea if anyone even cares about what's going on or if anyone even knows what's going on. All they know is that they're fighting for their lives. And if you look at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the most important thing for an individual is survival, first and foremost. Before you think about, I want to find a purposeful, a purpose in life, or I want to find a meaningful job, or I want to have high self-esteem, the first thing that an individual cares about is having food in their stomach and a roof over their head. If you're starving, of, if you're starving, if you're worried about your safety and security, you've got no time to think about what major you want to choose in university. And if the people are at a place where they're going, if I go home, I can't afford to buy food. If me and my sister go out, what if it's her that gets beaten to death? When people feel like their safety is in jeopardy, they will pour into the street. And they will be so desperate that they will give it all, even if it means losing their life. Now, if you have family in Iran and you're thinking, look, these parents don't want to let their kids leave because it's dangerous and they could lose their lives. A hundred percent, without a doubt. And I'm not saying they should. I'm saying I understand everyone's point of view. I understand the parent that doesn't want to let their kids leave the house because there's a very real possibility they will get arrested, if not worse. And I understand the young people, the people that are my age, early, mid 20 year olds, men and women, because these are the ones that push the revolutions over the fence. It's not the extremely young kids. It's not the extremely older folks. It's people my age. And you've got to decide if enough is enough. And when you make that choice, you will go out into the street and whatever happens, happens. It has been long. It has been hard. And this isn't just for Iran. This is for any country and any dictatorial place where you believe you are ruled by a tyrant and the rules are unfair and you feel like you have your basic human rights violated, what are you going to do about it? The first thing you do is you recognize that you're not alone. The first thing that you do is you, you share this stuff on social media, even if you're not in Iran, even if you don't even know anybody who's Iranian. What matters is this, 
there's going to be a place in an environment, either in the macro or in the micro, where the same principles will apply. There is a leader. They will begin to divide the people on the bottom to make them realize that there, there isn't as big of a ratio as they think there is. No one's coming to help you because nobody cares. Well, if nobody cares, then why did you turn off the internet? Nobody cares? So that's why Iran was trending number one on Twitter? The hardest thing for people is to come out of their homes. The hardest thing for people is to come together, is to unite, is to take the initiative. Everyone's waiting for one person to come forward. It's called diffusion of responsibility. I want change, but I don't want it to be me because there's a lot of risk in the first person. You know, there's a saying that goes, look, you don't necessarily want to be the first person that joins the revolution. You don't want to be the last person either. So people are kind of waiting this in between. Go look at a classroom. I bet you any amount of money, the, the one of the most popular seating positions, at least in, in my psychology in the last four years, has been the second row. The second or third row. Never the first, never the last. What does that tell you? Why not sit in the front row? Well, because that's too close to the, to the instructor. What if I don't like the prof? What if I say something stupid? What if they catch me cheating? Well, how about the back? Well, I can't hear very well and, and um, I'm going to get distracted. So the second row. So I've got one line of defense in front of me. That's how most people feel. And it's going to take brave, courageous people. Once that first line has been taken up, the rest becomes a lot easier. Not easier in terms of you're not afraid, but easier in terms of recognizing I'm not alone and we are in this together. So when you're at the top, when you want to impose a certain structure or certain laws, you use punishments and you set an example. You tell people that they're alone, that no one cares. You punish people horrifically and you make it a spectacle. Now, I don't think they meant for this to come out, like that she was beaten to death, but it's definitely not a secret that if you don't wear a hijab or if you even talk bad about the person in charge, people will come in a van and they will take you away forcefully. And then you can let your imagination wander and think about what's done to those people. That's what you want to do if you're at the top. And then what? You sit and wait and you think this is going to boil over. Why? People are mad in the street, but eventually they're going to get tired. They're going to get hungry. They're going to get afraid. We're going to keep arresting them. And it'll only last 10 days, 11, 12, 13 days. And then eventually the people will go home and they'll go back to school and they'll go back to work. And next thing we know, a month from now, everything will be back to normal. That's what they're hoping. If you're on the other side and you want to change the system, you understand it can't be by yourself. You have to get a social media presence out there. People have to care. And maybe you have to be the first person that steps out. Now we understand that setting rules and, and breaking rules and standing up and pushing back against something, it's contextual. When I talk about a revolution in the sense of maybe you're living in a world where you have a dictator and he's behaving in an unjust manner, a revolution sounds passionate, it sounds romantic, it sounds like the right thing to do. However, if I talk about that same example in a classroom environment, where a child is being disobedient, where they're disrupting the class, now maybe you'd lean towards the teacher's side and they should have a spine, they should have a backbone. And you understand how those exact same principles that we use when we look at an entire country are the exact same principles every mother and father uses at home. Do you let things slide? How strict are you 
What do you think about curfews? What are your thoughts on dress codes? It's not my place to tell you what's right, what's wrong, what should you allow your daughter to wear when she leaves the night. That's between you and your family. But what I want you to understand is that whenever you do something, you are modeling behavior. When mom and dad get into an argument and a five-year-old boy sits back and he watches and they're very attentive folks. Like they, they understand things that mean you might not might not even realize that they see. And they go, hmm, mom and dad argued for the second time this week and the argument ended. Why did the argument end? Well, the last thing that happened was dad yelled. Okay, so sometimes when people are arguing with you, you have to yell and then you win the argument. That's what dad just taught me. So whatever you do, whether you protest, whether you're having an argument with your partner in front of your kids, whether you're out with your parents and you're about to cross the street, you're having an interaction with a stranger, you are modeling behavior. This is what a parent should be like. This is what you should aspire to be like. This is what a person in this community should aspire to be like. This is what an Iranian or a person from any part of the world who believes they're having their human rights violated should behave like. People are watching. Don't underestimate the impact that your behavior has on your little siblings and niece and nephew. Many people believe that the environment impacts the individual. And I would completely agree with that idea. But what we tend to talk about a lot less is it's interdependent. Meaning the environment impacts the individual, but the individual impacts the environment as well. They both interact with one another. The environment influences the individual and the individual with their own specific temperament and personality, they influence their environment. The environment is a little bit different because of their presence. I hope this was an interesting lesson. I hope that we stay tuned and regardless of, of what you think about life and your own household rules, I hope it was interesting. I hope it was an interesting knowledge about education, about laws, about power, about systemic issues being shown as individual issues and the power of coming together and ratios and people uniting. And if you were sitting there hoping that Daniel was going to give this answer about revolution and this like profound, insightful thing, look, folks, it's extremely easy for me to sit in my own home in comfort with warmth drinking my tea saying, this is what I would do if I was there. You just have to do this. It's simple. But when you're on the streets, whether it be Ukraine, whether it be Iran, whether it be when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, whether it was in Syria at a point where everybody was in Syria, Russia was in Syria, America was in Syria, uh, the Syrian people, the president of Syria fired chemical warfare on his own people. It's a different story when you're there. But when you have nowhere else to turn to, when you have no other option, you must either obey or you must either rebel. And if both are terrible, if you're going, look, if I have to obey to these rules that I do not agree with, that would be miserable. But if I have to rebel, that is also miserable and dangerous. But one of them 
could change the system. One of them is indefinite and forever. The other could make a difference. Are you willing to pay the price? Thank you for listening, everybody. Take care and stay safe.